This is Real Practical Teaching, real educators talking about real teaching. I'm Scott Muller. What's the point of a test? I'm talking bigger than just, I've covered a certain amount of material, and I should probably give my students some kind of assessment to see if they know the right information. What's the real point of a test? Why do we give it as teachers? What's our rationale for how often and when tests are given? And I'm not talking about high-stakes testing. I'm talking about assessments that determine the mastery that students had of the particular skills that you're assessing in a unit. During my first couple of years of teaching, tests for me went something like this. Well, I've covered a couple of weeks worth of content and history. I should probably give them a test. So let's see, what terms did I think was important in this content? Okay, we'll do some matching. Let's throw in some multiple choice. And even though I really don't want to grade an essay, when I was in high school, we always did one. So I'll throw one in there too. My rationale for these tests was just, I thought it was about time students took them. I couldn't justify why I included certain questions and discluded certain ones. I had no idea what skills I was assessing on these tests. All I thought was, we covered this much material, I'm going to give you a test on this much material. And then with those essays that I put on there, I would put in some really great pieces of feedback like vague and good and you missed a comma here. No wonder my students hated my tests because they didn't see any value in it. They had no idea what they were being assessed on. They had no idea how they could see growth over time. They just saw a test as an obstacle they had to overcome. And then because of that, they saw me as a person who just placed obstacles in front of them instead of someone who was supposed to guide them through the learning process. And when students see their interactions with you through that lens, of course, you're gonna have issues with discipline and management. Both myself and my students needed a new way to view assessments. It wasn't until I read books by Dylan William, Grant Wiggins, and James McMillan that I truly understood the purpose of assessments and how they could be used to guide instructions rather than tests just being an endpoint to an instructional period. Now, there are going to be multiple podcasts probably talking about different aspects of formative assessment and summative assessment, but I wanted to take time on this podcast to talk about the structure of how to use assessments properly to guide instruction. Before we begin, I don't want to take credit for these ideas. These ideas are a conglomeration of the theories of Dylan William in his books Embedding Formative Assessment and Embedded Formative Assessment, Grant Wiggins' multiple books on backwards design and his especially a groundbreaking one, Understanding by Design, and James McMillan's book Classroom Assessment. To really make assessment purposeful, we have to start with something that a lot of teachers avoid. And to be honest, I avoid for the first five years of teaching, standards. Now, I know standards are a hot-button issue. Should they be specific to states or that should they be federalized? If they are going to be federalized, are the Common Core state standards sufficient enough to be applied to all students? And how specifically are standards going to be applied to individual locales and districts? Regardless, these standards are the things that our states or our federal government 
have asked us to assess so students can be successful in the 21st century world. And we have to take notice of them. So when we start to organize a unit of instruction, we always have to think of first, what do I want students to demonstrate mastery of at the end of this unit? We have to begin with the end in mind. Now, what those standards are are going to be different across different content areas. The distribution of skills to concepts are going to vary. In social studies at my particular school right now, we use Common Core State Standards for the skills we want students to demonstrate, and we use Aero Social Studies Standards to represent the concepts that students want to demonstrate mastery of. So whether that's students finding patterns in various civilization groups, differentiating between ionic and covalent bonding, hey, I did remember something from science, or whether that's demonstrating that students can write complex sentences, we have to start off with the standards. Once you've identified how many standards you're going to be assessing in this unit, we then need to think about what is the summative assessment that students will have to complete to demonstrate mastery over all of those skills. Now this allows us as teachers to be extremely creative. We don't have to give them a traditional paper and pencil test. We can give them some type of performance task. Make a podcast, do some sort of video-based design, collaborate with another school in order to create a presentation on X, create a find-your-own-adventure YouTube page where students have to click on various links throughout a particular YouTube video to make particular choices on a historical era, create a proposal for a sewer system that reflects the work of civil engineers, demonstrate mastery of certain science concepts by finishing a lab. Whatever it is, that summative assessment can be very malleable. It doesn't have to be a traditional paper and pencil test. Once a summative assessment is chosen that students will do to demonstrate mastery over particular standards, or, this sounds a little bit crazy, if you want to allow for differentiation of that summative assessment and offer multiple different ways that students can demonstrate mastery over those skills, you then have to make them. Once that summative assessment or summative assessments are made, we as teachers now have to figure out, okay, how do I need to unpack these particular skills to be used for something called formative assessment. If one of the standards I'm assessing with my students is the ability for them to identify common economic, social, and political factors that lead to conflict in the world, I have to think about what do they need to demonstrate to lead up to mastery in that particular standard. So, well, they're going to have to identify important people and ideas and events for multiple world conflicts or localized conflicts. They're going to have to identify what sample economic, social, and political influences on wars actually are before we look at these particular historical time periods. They're going to have to know how to compare various historical eras and how to find different patterns within history. And they're going to need to know how to transmit that information in some sort of oral or writing fashion. So those particular skills that I unpacked from that standard are going to be my base for formative assessment. The purpose of formative assessments are to lead to success on that summative assessment. So that means everything that I'm going to be doing in class is to reflect those formative assessments so students can demonstrate success on that standard in their summative assessment. 
This is when I start to design that instruction. What are we actually going to do in class so students can be successful on those formative assessment skills so that they can demonstrate mastery on that summative assessment? Again, if the particular standard that I'm looking at are the economic, social, and political factors that lead to conflicts, well, I'm going to design some flip videos that students watch at home in order to understand the basic, simple understanding concepts of the people, events, and ideas of various world conflicts that we're looking at in this historical time period. I'm going to design a Kahoot that demonstrates if students sufficiently understand those concepts in the video. I'm going to model the process of how students can identify patterns within two historical time periods. Students are going to interact with primary sources within those particular conflicts in order to identify the economic, social, and political factors that they're seeing in those time periods in isolation. Students are then going to take those various primary sources and compare them together to demonstrate if they can find those patterns. And all the while, I am giving feedback to students as they are working in this instructional process. Now, if I find that students are having issues with some of these formative assessments, then I need to stop, go back, and maybe even unpack that formative assessment a little bit more so that students can demonstrate understanding. This cycle is about reflection. Does the instruction prepare students for those formative assessments? Do those formative assessments prepare students for that standard on the summative assessment? And to be honest, after eight plus years, I'm still working on this process of being reflective. One particular example is my AP seminar class. We are working on a formative assessment of creating artifacts that demonstrated deep understanding of sources they are working on to create an argumentative essay. Now those artifacts were things like outlines, note cards, and annotated bibliographies. But in the middle of this process, I went to a conference where myself and other AP seminar teachers were discussing particular strategies so that students can demonstrate their knowledge on some of these important standards. And one of them was something called a chalk talk, where students identified various perspectives from the sources that they had, identified synthesis between those sources, and based on that, were able to see connections holistically through their argument. So I got back to class and I implemented this as students were working on those artifacts. And what I found was that students actually preferred the chalk talk to some of the other artifacts we had been working on. In fact, that chalk talk was more effective usually than the note cards and the annotated bibliographies that I was requ requiring students to create. So when we had to do another performance task where students were doing another argumentative piece, instead of letting them do note cards and annotated bibliographies and outlines, they had the choice of substituting note cards and annotated bibliographies with a chalk talk if that was going to be more effective for them. And through reflection of that instructional design, students were more effective on that formative assessment, which led them to greater gains and successes on that summative assessment at the end of the unit. Again, classroom assessment is a huge topic, and I didn't really get into the details of different types of summative assessments, how many summative assessments you should do, different types of formative assessment, things that students actually demonstrate, and non-graded formative assessments. There's a lot of different topics that we could get into, and hopefully I'll be able to touch on them in further podcasts. 
So what questions do you have about this process? What am I missing that doesn't necessarily apply to the situation that you're in as a teacher? Let me know and myself or someone smarter than me can help to answer those particular questions. Today's conversation is with Dr. Scott Dennison. Dr. Dennison is the superintendent of curriculum at an international school in the Middle East and has extensively reflected on how assessment can guide instruction. During this conversation, you're going to hear references to backwards design, specifically using the understanding by design template from Wiggins and McTeague. If you would like to see an adapted copy of this design, you can find a link on our Twitter hashtag at hashtag realpracticalteaching. Something I appreciated during our conversation was the way Dr. Dennison was able to explain the relationship between standards, summative assessments, formative assessments, and day-to-day -day instruction, because it helps me see the bigger perspective of teaching and learning. And now, Dr. Scott Dennison. Dr. Scott Dennison, thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Well, the first thing I want to get into before we talk about using assessment to guide instruction is I want to ask you, why are you in education? What drew you into the teaching profession? Sure. So there's um, two main two main reasons. One of them was I was especially at the early elementary uh, school age. I was inspired by a lot of just outstanding teachers. And then on the flip side of that, as I got into a higher level uh, studies, I was uninspired by some of my my teachers. So I I really felt that why why did um, you know why was there that inconsistency? And I wanted to be one of those inspiring teachers. And I also um, did some volunteer work in elementary schools, and I really loved the lower elementary grades, and that's where I started out my career in grade one. So I I had some experience and also my experiences as a student were why I chose teaching. It was teaching and law, I think I chose the right one. I think you did too. <laughs> so we're talking about uh, using assessment to guide instruction, particularly using a backwards design method. And I know you've looked into this quite a bit, so can you just let me know what's the rationale for developing this method? So backward design, um, I've been using it almost all my teaching career. I, I used it before the UBD planner came out, um, or I knew about it. and. What, what I found was the backward design focuses on three main things. The, the acquiring of important knowledge, the, the making the meaning of that knowledge, and then the, the ability to transfer knowledge to other subject areas and to future learning. Where before when I was planning not using backward design, I was doing a lot of recall and just basic, basic skills, and it, and it wasn't that, um, that transfer, that, that teaching for understanding as the term understanding by design um, would, would indicate. Uh, it's also, as the standards movement has gained momentum, it, it really helps focus on standards and um, always looking at the end in mind as you are planning, where are we going with this? What is the big understanding? So I, I think that's very important. And as I reflect on how I planned before using backward design, it was sitting with colleagues, piecing together kind of neat activities that we somehow hoped would make into a cohesive unit and <clears throat> that didn't always work out. So again, with backward design, you're looking at the end, you're looking at those big ideas, those big understandings and how, how that's going to transfer later in their, in their learning. So it, it really helps, helps to, to focus the attention on what's important. It, it makes sure everything that you do is purposeful towards that end goal. So it helps to, to, to funnel the attention towards uh, the, 
the, the, the end result, the understanding, the big idea, and the standards that, that are the you know, larger learning goals that are set out. Oh, especially because with a movement towards standard-based assessment, standards-based learning, if you're just thinking about it day-to-day, you're really not thinking about the big picture of what am I trying to do in terms of standards and how those standards interact. Whereas if you think about the end in mind you first start off with, well, where are the standards I'm trying to hit here? You can see there how they, how they collate together and how they can be built upon throughout that unit. So in a UBD unit plan, there are three particular stages that are outlined, stage one, two, and three. What are those stages and what's the rationale for creating them? Yeah, so stage one is those long-term transfer goals. Uh, what um, we did at our school was to take the understanding by design template, work with teachers, and make it as meaningful as possible so they would use it. So. Um, Wiggins and McTighe do an outstanding job of creating creating the planner. But we did was we made it as as user friendly as possible without contaminating what the the components are of of the original UBD document. So like one thing that um, that was asked is, can you make it landscape? Because um, the the letter letter size um, you know was problematic. Can you also in terms of um, so stage one. We, we embed the standards, but then next to that, we also talk about the long-term learning targets, which are in student-friendly language. So that focuses what our standards are with what we actually, you know, present to students in a student-friendly manner. So it that will help focus not just for the teachers and for them to understand the standards, but how those standards translate to students and and to their learning. Also. Um, Content connection was was something that we added to stage one. Uh, that was that was things like the science teachers came and said, well, there's a lot of math involved with science. Also, with the Common Core State Standards for English Language Arts, there's. Uh, standards for reading and writing within other content areas so that's that's an area for them to to, to add standards we of course have uh, in stage one the essential questions the enduring understandings also added a terminology uh, section which teachers found very helpful uh, and this is designed to focus on new vocabulary for that unit and also ones that are, have been recently taught that need to be reinforced. So we don't need a shopping list of hundreds of words, but just really purposeful ones that students really truly need to understand, use in their discussion with other students, use in, in, their, um, in their writing about the topic. And that reminds me of a KUD in terms of differentiation. If I'm trying to introduce a new unit, really thinking about, okay, what are the concepts they need to know, and then the U would be their understanding or standards, the D would be what we want them to be able to do. So that terminology section really forces me as a teacher to think about, well, what are the course concepts that I really want them to understand in that unit? So what about stage two? So stage two is the is the evidence of under, of, of of the understanding that they're they're trying to obtain. So we have um, what I find the most powerful of the entire planner is the performance task. It it forces teachers to design a performance task for every unit um, and. Some, some teachers will tell you, well, that's not possible, and then you work with them, and they will be able to find math in particular. Um, that, was, uh, that was a pet peeve of, uh, I remember seeing um, the late uh, Grant Wiggins in, in a conference in St. Louis, and he was getting a lot of 
pushback from math teachers, and he actually had them stay for a s separate session afterwards, oh, wow. which I heard was quite interesting. So <laughs> uh, we lost a gem with Grant Wiggins, but anyhow, the um, yeah. So the performance task, and and particularly an authentic performance task, which shows the the application of that. Um, there's also summative assessments that we have them list. With, with the summative assessments, we also ask, ask teachers to attach the standards in coded form so it focuses them back on the, the main learning goal and in the formative assessments as well. That's what we have in our stage two. So the idea is in stage one, I need to think about here are the standards I'm trying to hit and here's how I can put them in student-friendly language so that students understand what their learning goals are. I need to think about content connections. I need to think about what are the big understanding principles that I want them to get at the Transfer end of this. Knowledge. What yep. kind of essential questions can I find through these standards? And then terminology, what are, the, what are the core concepts I want them to understand? Then stage two, I'm trying to take all that and say, okay, well at the end of that unit, what do I want them to create to demonstrate the mastery of those standards and those understandings? So that's where your performance tax comes in that reflect an authentic experience in the content. There's where your summative assessment comes in, your formative assessments, and you specifically want teachers to say, all right, in your summatives, what standards are you hitting? In your formatives, what summative will that prepare them for? So that forces us to really make sure that everything is, is collated together and, and align properly. So what about stage three? So stage three is the learning plan. What we require in, in, in our school is a week by week uh, plan. We, we have uh, three different categories within, within uh, the learning plan. We ask for an instructional plan. So again, the specific learning objectives, the specific learning activities that are going on for that week. We also ask for the, the connection between that long-term uh, learning target within that within that week of instruction. So again, continuing to focus on, so how does this lead to that, that transfer knowledge? And then just to list if there's assessments of that week, which assessments they are, we can always refer back to stage two to see more specifics on that assessment, but just, just to list um, the assessments to help them plan where these assessments, especially the formative, are meaningfully being embedded within the, the, the week plan. Now some teachers prefer to do even more detailed planning on a, on a lesson by lesson basis and that's fine. What we require is we want to see the big picture, we want to see this cohesive um, you know, week by week set of instructions that are going to lead to those uh, understandings that we desire in stage one. And again, focusing them back stage one uh, throughout that process. So one thing that I, that I noticed when we were looking at this particular plan that you have, uh, you designed for your school, is this section under the standards called Essential Question and Enduring Understandings. What's the rationale for having those under the standards? Because when I initially saw that, I, I thought very idealistic, flowery language, and I, I didn't understand the, the, the rationale for that. Can you, can you clear sure. that up for me? So essential questions and enduring understandings are designed to be engaging for, for actual students. So it, it helps you translate the standards you're and the understandings you're trying to um, relate to students in student-friendly language at the different appropriate levels. And... Um, it kind of answers for students, you know, why are we learning this stuff? I, I've had chemistry teachers who've posed a, uh, 
an essential question like, who cares about chemistry? Why do we learn chemistry? And that becomes an, an essential question that, that is on their wall the entire, the entire course of the year, which keeps getting focused back whenever they have an opportunity to on why they do that. So again, it's, it should be in student-friendly language. It should be uh, unanswerable, not, not a question that can be easily answered. And, and again, that, that continuation of focusing on those questions should help students uh, continue with their inquiry into that subject area. So really it's a, it's a tool for students to think about, well, what's the goal? Why am I here? And it gives them a target that they continue to learn and develop with throughout that unit of instruction. It's really a, a guiding principle. Yeah, it should be continually focused and referred to throughout the unit, so it should be meaningful enough that it doesn't just get hit in one area and then carried on. It, 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 that question does carry on and can be re-asked throughout. So it, so it really means that teachers need to make sure that those enduring understandings and those essential questions are ever-present in the classroom, that students always see them and have them in their minds, that these are the goals that we're working toward in that unit. Perfect, yes. So how can I make sure that, okay, if I've chosen particular standards, whether they're Arrow or NGSS or Common Core, and I'm going to create some summative assessments for that unit of instruction. How can I make sure my standards are addressed in the summative assessments? That's one of the, the reasons we purposefully put a, a separate box in the planner for, for standards, which, which had the teachers focus on, okay, I'm giving a summative, what standards are those going to hit? So again, continually focusing on your standards and how that applies to the assessments you're, you're, you're giving for, for students. Uh, the, uh, the authentic performance task, again, that should be addressed at the outset. That should be the first thing you, you plan for um, when you're, after you've got your, your stage one done, the performance test, how are they going to show that understanding? And in terms of the performance task, uh, it should be one that is somewhat unfamiliar so it, they can take their, their knowledge and skills and then be put into a situation where it is a little bit unfamiliar to them based on what they've been doing in class and so then they have to actually show that they understand the concept by being put in this unfamiliar situation and then working through it. So, so he, here's a, a question. If I was, let's say, in, in, in university or if I was a first year teacher and I was introduced to this particular method, one thing that might come to my mind is well, why, I, why can't I just determine on my own what students need to know. If I'm the professional in the classroom, why do I need to go through this entire process? Why can't I just say, well, I'm a math teacher. I know what they need to learn from math and just create based off that rationale. Yeah, so uh, the recent movement in this, uh, the recent developments in the standards-based movement, uh, I, I believe have been really uh, strongly thought out. The, if you look at the Common Core State Standards, say in mathematics or next generation science standards, the the people who have been involved in that, from academics to teachers, administration, also in, individuals in industry where these our students are going to eventually be um, in the workforce working for, uh, they, they have developed these really purposefully and, and collectively. So the standards themselves are cohesive, they're, they're progressive, and this is something that I, I believe teachers should not be focused on. I think teachers should be focused on their instruction within the classroom setting. So by accepting standards um, and using these as the foundation for the, the, the broad learning objectives, teachers then can focus their attention where it's needed on, on the classroom, on instruction. 
Also with, with Common Core and Next Generation sta uh, Science Standards and internationally we have um, Aero Standards as well, which really help to keep this consistency um, for students learning. Students aren't always going to be, especially in the international environment, but also in, um, in the United States, they're not going to consistently be in the same school. So if they transfer to another school, these standards allow for consistency in learning objectives and also when certain learning happens during which grade level. So this keeps consistency and, and support for students as they might move out of a district to another, to another district, another state. So I think that's an important, important reason why standards are there and why teachers should, should follow standards. Um, I do also think though that the vast amount of standards teachers have to have to teach, they should have some voice. They are experts in terms of their content area. So we have allowed for the development of power standards in, with um, consultation with our teachers in order to focus on a, a real essential set of standards that must be in all the units, must be the, assessed. That doesn't mean we ignore the rest, but we, we help teachers to, um, to with, with their help, we were able to focus on these essential standards. So there should still be some voice of teachers in terms of um, the learning objectives as well. So it's not that we're trying to say you have no control over what the, the learning targets or the standards are in your classroom, but look, we need some consistency between classes, between schools, and honestly, the people who put these standards together are probably smarter than you, than you by yourself. So it, it, is, it is justifiable to try to adopt them. However, with the amount of standards that are present, within each school in the different environments that we find these students in, we can create power standards and really prioritize particular ones based on the different environments that we find ourselves in. And teachers have enough to do with, with getting those, um, you know, the instructional practices down, set, uh, down pat and um, learning new instructional uh, practices. So they've got enough to focus on. We don't need to burden them with coming up with the, the broad learning targets. Well, I appreciate you saying that because I know that's something I think about quite a bit. Yeah. So in the, in the performance task section of your UVD, uh, you mentioned using a GRASPS method to develop the performance task to really focus teachers on the purpose for that performance task. Why did you use that GRASPS method? Yeah, so uh, GRASPS is an acronym for uh, Goal, Role, Audience, Situation, Performance, and Standards. Uh, it, it helps to develop an authentic goal uh, for students. Uh, and, and I'll give you an example. So in, in chemistry, we sat down with chemistry teachers and we looked at, so what would be something authentic? And they talked about identifying unknown chemicals. So a goal would be for, for them as a, you know, they get sent a shipment from somewhere where a chemist is given an unidentified chemical. They have to analyze it and they have to, you know, make sure it's safe. Or say an art dealer is given a, a portrait and they have to determine whether this is valuable or not. So again, using that skill, using and, and it really shows understanding. So what GRASP does is it gives an authentic role and situation for the student to perform that's somewhat in the practice of a professional within that, within that realm and more, more so in the high school, high school area. But what, is, what it also does is it helps to clearly define what the standard of success is. So there should be some clear rubrics which are standards based um, onto that performance task. One caution though about GRASP is it's, 
Some have taken a little bit too literal. Um, it's not a, a rigid formula. It's, it's a guideline or a checklist. So what you could do is to design your performance task and then go through the grasps, the grasp um, acronym and, and see if you have those components. So I, I would suggest using more of a, a guideline when you're developing it or a checklist after you've developed one to see if those components are in. But really it's, it's designed for um, authentic performance tasks and, and, and engaging ones. For so students. really it's just a guide to make sure that I am in creating a performance task that mirrors the discipline that I, that I teach. If I'm a history teacher and I want to create an authentic performance task, I need to make sure that they're working with primary sources. I need to make sure, okay, the learning product that they're creating, that can be mirrored in the actual professional field and the GRASS method helps me create that and have that right, uh, correct perspective when making the performance tasks. So here's a question with formative assessment. Sometimes I think uh, myself along with other teachers have difficulty making sure that your formative assessments align with your summative assessments. So what's the best way to create formative assessments that align with those summative assessments? Yeah, so as, as Rick Stiggins defines, uh, he, he uses the term instead of formative assessment, he, he uses the term assessment for learning. So that, that's what you, um, that, that should be the grounding for, for teachers in terms of the development of their formative assessment. So what is, what is the benchmarks along the way that students need to hit and also for me to see how my teaching and instruction and, and their level of understanding is going from a teacher's perspective in order to build up the knowledge and skills necessary to say uh, be successful or have the tools to be successful for that performance task. So it's a scaffolding of, of or a step process to reach that. So map, mapping it out, looking again at that end performance task, those summatives, and then mapping out. So where are the stages that students need in order to, to develop their skills and knowledge up to the level where they would be able to get that, say, unfamiliar, unfamiliar substance or unfamiliar historical text and be able to analyze it or, or do, you know, do chemical experiments with it is the skill set there. So it's, it's a building process. And really that's the important reason why summative assessments should be created first because then I can look at that summative assessment and then unpack it and say, all right, if I want students to be successful at the summative assessment, what skills and what concepts do I need to make sure they've mastered along the way so that when it comes to that summative assessment, they have all the tools to be successful. So one thing I have to ask with those formative assessments though, how can I tell if they're effective? Maybe I've determined, okay, I'm going to unpack this and I believe these are going to be the formative assessments I'll use, but how can I be reflective to make sure that they are actually preparing students for that summative assessment? Yeah, so two questions that I, I like to pose for teachers when they're reflecting on formative assessment is, so what are the skills students will need to move forward towards their summative assessment? And am I as a teacher developing the depth of knowledge necessary for them to be successful on the summative ass assignment? So in terms of seeing their effectiveness, you look for, you know, gauge where the students are, look at student work, gauge the effectiveness of your instruction through student responses to things. Um, look, at, look at the data, um, look, at, look at the responses students have. Should be, you should be collecting that data on a, on a daily basis, uh, keeping, keeping prior knowledge at the forefront. Most importantly, I believe, is to teachers where at all possible to involve themselves in PLCs and bringing student work with colleagues to, to discuss you know, 
what, what we want students to learn. Um, how do we know that they've, they've learned what we, we want them to know? What do we do if they don't at, or have not learned it yet? And what do we do if they've already learned it? So how can we plan and adjust and, and, and move forward with our students? So again, collaboration, um, looking at the, the data that students are giving you, looking, looking at responses in the classroom, having opportunities for that present within, within the class. I think all of that really will, will help to, to keep formative assessment um, effective and, and on track. So the idea is collaborate with other people in your grade level or with that uh, your, your common department. planning team. Make sure you're constantly keeping data on how students are doing on that formative assessment, constantly keeping in mind what they're working towards, be reflective, have a plan if they're not, if the formative assessments aren't necessarily preparing them for that summative assessment, and always just have that cycle of reflection. Are the formative assessments preparing them? How can I alter those things if it's, if it's not? How do I potentially differentiate if there is a group who have already achieved what I want them? How do I challenge them? And then also, how do I um, support those who, who don't? And again, it could be designing a, a different structure in your class where you, you do more conferring at certain points if the whole group isn't ready for, for the next steps. So in relation to that, what's the best way I can reflect on my day-to-day -day instructional plans as I'm moving towards success on those formative assessments and summative assessments? Again, the professional learning community, um, making sure that your school embeds time for uh, collaboration uh, within the schedule during the school day and making sure that um, teachers utilize that time, uh, talking with colleagues, sharing experiences that you've had and the ones that colleagues have had on how students have responded to the learning and developing plans to go, to go forward towards your, your performance task. In a, in a meaningful way with the support of others who are teaching the same subject or in the same department. Some schools that are small might not have the opportunity to have two teachers teach the same course, but that doesn't mean um, that they, there's, there's not an opportunity to collaborate with, with people within the department or who, who are within the same building level. One other thing that I think is, has been effective for me, and something that Dylan William had suggested, is after a particular class, I'll say, okay guys, scale of one to five. One being absolutely terrible, five being fantastic. How well do you feel that what I've done today prepares you for success on your summative assessment or success on this formative assessment? And I just ask for them for feedback because as a teacher, I need to be allow for formative assessment of myself and my practices. And if my students feel like I'm not preparing them successfully, well, I need to hear from them because obviously I'm there for that. I'm there to make sure they're successful. And sometimes I think we, we shy away from student perceptions of our teaching practices. And we need to empower them to, to tell us how they think the learning process is going because we aren't in their heads. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So let's say I've listened to this podcast and how a UBD structure works, but I'm still very hesitant to adopt it. So let's defend this process in terms of a day-to-day -day, uh, perspective. So how is backwards design better than a lesson-to-test perspective of crafting a unit. How, why do I need to start with the end in mind instead of just thinking, well, here's what I gotta do today, and then we'll eventually get to that test at the end? So backward design creates purposeful planning, as you said, with the end in mind. Day-to-day uh, -day planning relies on activities that are, are pieced together, uh, from my experience, we looked for the neatest activities that kind of got some response from, from previous, previous classes. 
Uh, and then often those don't accumulate into a cohesive unit that's focused. Uh, they tend to also, in terms of depth of learning, become more uh, basic, basic skills and content focused, whereas focusing on backward design where you're looking at uh, large uh, understandings and transferable skills, it, it becomes more purposeful and then your end result becomes uh, again, more meaningful for students in, in terms of their long-term long learning as opposed to just understanding certain content for a particular course or basic skills. This focuses on larger transfer, transferable skills, transferable knowledge, and keeps us focused on the big picture. Where the day-to-day -day planning, I, I would be hesitant that a teacher would be able to, to, to ha keep the perspective, that large long-term perspective in mind as they day-to-day -day plan. So really it's keeping learning at the forefront and it's making sure that everything that you do is aligned and it has a larger purpose rather than having a small day-to-day -day perspective on the learning process. Mm -hmm. So okay, I'm a new teacher, I've just graduated, I have a basic conceptual understanding of backwards design because my professor told me about it in one class. <laughs> you come into a school and I'm supposed to be create, using backward design, using a UBD method. So what are the most important things to remember when I'm creating my first UBD? So I've, I've got three, three pieces of advice for new teachers using backward design. The first one was, is to really know your, your content standards. Know your standards and make sure you're working with a manageable number. I see a lot of young teachers coming in into the classroom for the first time and they want to do everything that first unit. Keep it, uh, so know your standards, know where the standards want to take the students during that course or that year and make sure you, you assign a manageable number for each unit of study you're planning. Also, really look at that authentic performance task at the outset. Develop that, work with colleagues to develop a real meaningful, rich, authentic performance task that will drive everything you do within that unit. And when you're designing that authentic performance task, keep referring to stage one, making sure that it's not just a neat activity, a fun one, but it is actually addressing um, those standards and transferable skills, important knowledge. And finally, uh, utilize the resources that are available. Uh, Wiggins and McTighe have authored uh, two books in particular, UBD Guide to High Quality Units and UBD Guide to Advanced Concepts. And both of those are, are module-based. They can help you, say you're struggling with essential questions. Um, they can help you develop essential questions. There are tons of enduring understandings, essential questions that are just available to take. You do not need to reinvent things. There's ideas for performance tasks or developing them. Any Any difficulty you are having with any stage of understanding by design, the modules in those two books will address it and in a really user-friendly way and a very comfortable way and also take as much as you as you can from them and, and use them, they encourage that. So there's lots of resources out there uh, and utilize the resources and your colleagues to help you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Dennison, for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate the um, opportunity. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have any questions about using assessment to guide instruction, backwards design, or the understanding by design method, or if you would like to share your experiences with this strategy, join the conversation at the Twitter hashtag RealPracticalTeaching or our Tumblr page.